This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. And this is a special crossover episode of Drilled and Damages. Today I am joined by Sam Sinkar, Senior Vice President of Earth Justice, and Kirti Datla, Director of Strategic Legal Advocacy for Earth Justice, to talk a little bit more about what exactly the West Virginia versus EPA decision meant and to look ahead at some of the big cases for climate folks to be watching in the next Supreme Court session coming up this fall. There's a lot to get into here from the continued attempt to dismantle the quote-unquote administrative state to the way that the Clean Water Act is being targeted in a case coming up next session to how litigation remains a very important tool even with the Supreme Court on fire. We're going to get into all of that and more coming up after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing earth breeze. I know you're thinking laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. Earth breeze eco sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes, so it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. 
It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40, 40. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Sam Sankar. I'm the senior vice president of uh, programs at Earth Justice, which means I lead our lobbying and litigation efforts. I'm uh, Kirti Datla, and I'm the director of strategic legal advocacy at Earth Justice, uh, which in a nutshell means I kind of keep track of the goings on in the federal courts, um, especially the Supreme Court, uh, on issues that kind of crop up across all of our cases. Okay, so I know that it's been a while since the West Virginia versus EPA decision came down. With with a couple months, you know, past it, what do you think the implications of that decision are or will be? Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, I think your listeners um, are already pretty well versed in this case, but just as a reminder, um, you know, the case is ostensibly about this Obama era regulation called the Clean Power Plan that addressed emissions from uh, fossil fuel-fired power plants. But that regulation is sort of a zombie regulation that had, because of the Supreme Court um, issuing a stay, never got into effect. And that was sort of kind of practically dead for all, all purposes. And the Supreme Court took a case that was about whether or not that, that zombie regulation was valid, largely to address something called the major questions doctrine, which had sort of been cobbled together out of a couple sentences here and there in the Supreme Court's past cases by folks like West Virginia and the group of states that it was leading in this case and the industry groups that were on their side. And as they put it to the court, you know, the idea is that if if a federal agency is going to address something that has big economic and political consequences, it needs to be able to identify something really clear in the statute that gives it the authority to do basically exactly what it tried to do. And, you know, it's sort of obvious just from describing the doctrine that they pitched to the court that it is inherently deregulatory. You know, it only applies when the government wants to do something. 
and the kind of tests that it that it asks agencies to overcome is one that will be hard, um, if not impossible, to overcome in most cases. So, you know, they took the case to the court. The court accepted the case, and at the end of its term, on the last day of its term, actually issued a decision in the case that. It kind of accepts the general premise of, of what West Virginia and those on its side asked the court to do, but doesn't go all the way, somewhat thankfully. So the court kind of accepts the idea that the major questions doctrine exists. It, it you know describes it using that name for the first time. And it says that in certain you know unusual cases, in certain extraordinary cases, it's going to apply this, this sort of common sense and also constitutionally based assumption that Congress didn't mean to give agencies, you know, broad authority to to do things like reshape a market or, you know, impose a really significant uh, regulation. So I say it did kind of go all the way because it it does, you know, have that limiting language in there. It does. The court does say, you know, it's not supposed to apply in every case. But the decision's also pretty mushy in terms of saying when it does apply and the factors that it's going to consider. So it's a little hard to say what the effect of the decision will be because um, we don't have a lower court decision applying it yet. But you know, I think it's safe to say that the reason this doctrine was kind of invented and created and, and taken to the Supreme Court was because it's deregulatory. It was kind of another tool in the toolbox of people who don't like federal regulations. And um, we know from what has happened, you know, in the run-up to the decision and after it, that that's exactly how it's being used. So we know that people have kind of been making noises either in their comments to agencies or in briefs before federal courts or press statements that they think that, you know, a whole host of federal regulations should be challenged on this basis. And that ranges from things like the Department of Transportation's fuel efficiency standards for vehicles, the new uh, rule that the SEC is working on related to climate disclosures, things going all the way down to things that seem pretty odd major, like the EPA's rules regarding overcoming tampering, preventing tampering of, of, of cars to get around emission standards. And then mm-hmm. it have nothing to do with the environment, things like the DACA program. So that's an immigration-related law. There's challenges to visa programs related to the major questions doctrine. You know, it's a, like I said, it's a tool in the toolbox of people that don't like regulations. And those people see, you know, see everything as a nail and are <laughs> taking out this hammer and banging on it. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't mean to say, I just want to be clear, like, the fact that people are raising this argument all the time doesn't mean it's a good argument. It doesn't mean it's going to win, but it mm-hmm. does mean that the doctrine is serving exactly the purpose it was created to serve. Right, right. I'm I'm curious about um, how all of that fits in with the context of the Inflation Reduction Act, too. First, I'd love to to sort of hear from from both of you your thoughts on um, on gaps in that legislation and and where litigation might play a role in um, in addressing some of the the concerns that people have about it but then I also wonder how people are thinking about litigation given um, what's happening at the Supreme Court right now uh, kind of kind of broadly sure well why don't I take the first part of that question um, 
the you know the the first part what does the IRA do and what's the role of litigation in the IRA um and you know the, I'll, I'll let Kirti talk a little bit more about the the impact of just the the general impact of this Supreme Court on litigation um in uh, in service of environmental and public interests um the, the IRA is first and foremost a, a spending bill so one of the the things about it is that it, it's it's basically giving money to a whole lot of different sectors, including the clean energy sector and the oil and gas sector in the form of various tax credits and other direct spending. And that kind of policy work is not the sort of thing that the Supreme Court is going to have a lot to do with or the federal courts in general, um, because it's spending. Uh, this isn't regulation. And Politically speaking, that's that's actually been the secret to to making progress legislatively on con- on uh, on climate is to say like let's let's spend our way out of this problem. Let's invest in a clean energy economy. And the um, the deal, of course, was that this had to go along with a lot of of uh, oil and gas and problematic spending as well, and in, in, including in in technologies like uh, carbon capture and sequestration and blue hydrogen, which are at best unproven and at, at worst really just um, you know this the same old stuff in disguise. So on the IRA, some of the problematic elements have basically been the the parts that are going to make it easier to and cheaper to expand uh, fossil fuel infrastructure across a lot of places in the country that have al- that already have a lot of that infrastructure and that as a result um, involve a lot of pollution burdens on the people who live there. And so ironically, a lot of those communities um, are the the foundation of a movement for climate justice that is very much part of the the political support for this legislation uh, and for President Biden's overall success in in the last presidential election. So it's ironic that that they're going to, in many respects, see the the raw side of this deal. So what role does litigation play? Well, nothing in the Inflation Reduction Act, nothing in there limits the role of traditional environmental laws. Uh, and that means that all of that infrastructure, oil and gas and, and problematic pollution generating infrastructure is going to be subject to those laws. And so litigation is going to have a substantial role in making sure that any development that's supported under this uh, this act is going to be is going to have to pass through the gauntlet of those laws. And organizations like Earth Justice are very much going to be helping those communities fight back to make sure that the future that they get out of this bill is a future that they want. Um, anyway, we could go into that a little bit more, but I'll let Kirti talk about the the court. Yeah. I, I mean, as to the Supreme Court, I'll just, you know, it's not like the Supreme Court has ever been like super environmentally friendly. Um, so the climate court, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, I, I think it's important to just like set the baseline in the right place, but that said, um, you know, obviously, this is a different court. This is a more um, conservative court, a court that's more skeptical of a federal authority and a federal agency authority in particular. Um, but that doesn't mean that, like, everybody should pack it up and go home. It just means that, um, you know, as with any challenge in litigation, you have to be forward thinking and, and um, you know, and kind of smart about how you approach litigation and think about where the risk is and think about where you can make progress 
despite that risk. And, and as Sam, I think, kind of previewed, you know, there's lots of sort of bread and butter um, environmental litigation that just isn't going to make its way up to the Supreme Court because it doesn't implicate the kind of big picture issues or principles that the Supreme Court's concerned about. And, and that those are things like, you know, when a facility gets built, it has to, you know, get certain permits and then those permits need to be enforced. And our federal environmental laws allow citizens, people who live, you know, across the fence line from these really polluting facilities to, um, to help enforce those permitting conditions, right? And so those are the kinds of suits where it's it's just about a specific permit and whether or not it's being complied with. It's not about some big question of federal power, right? Um, so, you know, those are the kinds of things where if you hold people to their legal obligations, you can, um, you know, have an effect in these, in these frontline communities on these facilities that, you know, unfortunately and you know, wrongly are, are disproportionately burdening these, um, these people. But that's the kind of litigation that's not going to, um, you know, that doesn't really happen in the shadow of the Supreme Court. And even in bigger cases, you know, we at Earth Justice um, had a, a pretty important Clean Water Act case a couple of years ago that our litigators um, went before the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, it was the, the 5-4 version, not the 6-3 version, but even so, uh, you know, we still won that case and, and would have won it under this court. So, and that's just a matter of being, you know, understanding how this court looks at statutes, understanding the perspective of the Supreme Court and, and speaking in the language they want to be spoken to, right? So that's just litigating well, um, and you can still win cases that way. So, you know, I don't mean to be like rosy-eyed about about everything, but I think there's a certain degree of just like really good lawyering will still win cases and really strategic lawyering can still make a big difference. I'm curious what you both think about um, some of some of the the quote unquote side deal, um, the, the aspects of that related to the IRA, especially in terms of, you know, permitting and NEPA and um, the the ways that what at least has been kind of reported on so far seems to be getting around some of, of our kind of, you know, environmental laws in favor of um, permitting things like pipeline. And I, I, I want to ask you specifically about the Mountain Valley pipeline in a minute too. But in, in general, yeah, I guess how is Earth Justice approaching that that conversation and, and what are the things that um, that you're kind of hoping to to not see in, in the final version of that? Well, uh, you know, this is Friday, August 12th. It's a big day for passing the, the overall right. IRA. <laughs> so, um, you know, first and foremost, we're looking forward to, to passage of the bill, and we're looking forward to President uh, Biden signing it. Um, it. It's worth noting that, you know, the, the draft of this side deal that we have, which is kind of freakishly watermarked as API draft, is from several weeks ago. And there's been no indication from uh, Senator Schumer or Senator Manchin's office uh, they haven't. We haven't seen a more recent version of this side deal. In fact, the version that we have seen doesn't even include what it. What we gather are some specific deals about the the MVP, the Mountain Valley, Valley Pipeline. So, so a lot of what I'll I'll say here is based on something that may not be the current deal. Um, 
I mean, that said, the, the, the version that we saw from a few weeks ago includes a couple of major provisions that are problematic on, on their own. Um, <clears throat> one is a, a series of provisions that are designed to, uh, in quotes, streamline the permitting process. And what that functionally means is making it uh, harder to, well, making making it easier for agencies to do NEPA analyses by by making those analyses um, less thorough or allowing them to do less thorough analyses, and then by making it harder for people to comment and seek judicial review on those analyses. Um, you know, for example, the statute of limitations for uh, for NEPA challenges in some, in most cases, is six years, and under this. Uh, under the draft that we've seen, it would be five months in some cases. And that may seem like, well, that, geez, that five months, you should you should be able to know if there's a problem with the project. But in fact, many of these projects get approved long before anyone in the community has any idea that that something is, is up. And so uh, given the way that we <clears throat> notify communities about what's going on, five months is often a laughably short period of time for them to be able to respond in court. There's also a bunch of other provisions uh, that that essentially require the president to prioritize uh, oil and gas, large oil and gas development for special attention through the permitting process. Um, And anyway, and and there's also some things that affect the Clean Water Act. Uh, There's some things that uh, that are uh, generally pro electricity infrastructure, but also contains some problematic versions. So there's a lot of stuff in there. We don't really know what the final deal is going to be. Um, but we also know that unlike the the IRA, there's going to be a real legislative conversation about this. Um, we know that, you know, the House hasn't already, hasn't passed this. This may be a deal among a couple of senators, but that doesn't mean that the House of Representatives is going to do it. And, uh, and you know, as we hope, the IRA is going to be passed and this side deal is going to have to pass independently. Um, I'll let Kirti talk a little bit about what the rumors of what we've heard about this Mountain Valley pipeline. And, and you know, the, the side deal also includes this slightly um, odd judicial review provision as well. Yeah, Kirti, can you talk a little bit about the Mountain Valley pipeline and also like related to that, the um, the the way that at least what we've seen and what's been, you know, kind of shared with the press, the way that it would dictate jurisdiction um, seems really uh, troubling, I think. So yeah, I'd love to hear you, um, your take on that. Yeah. So as Sam kind of previewed, um, for when it comes to Mountain Valley pipeline, we don't even have, you know, the draft (laughs) text of their provision. We have kind of a rumor that, um, Mountain Valley pipeline and its backers, um, want, um, and have, I guess, secured, language that would take cases out of the fourth circuit, which is where they're filed under the default, um, you know, like federal statutes. And um, I think potentially put them into the DC circuit. And um, the reason Mount Valley Pipeline wants this is because um, basically the way that courts of appeals work is, you know, most of them have a rule that says, you know, when one panel, which is three judges, gets assigned to a case, if a later case comes up that, you know, involves the same project or, you know, set of issues or or similar record, you know, it's just more efficient to assign those to the same panel because, like, they're already familiar with it. And so uh, Mount Valley Pipeline's first case got assigned to a panel in the Fourth Circuit 
And uh, most of the later cases related to that pipeline have also been assigned to the same panel. And Mount Valley Pipeline is upset that it has lost some of these cases and already complained to the Fourth Circuit itself. So, you know, in some of the decisions that it's lost, and, and I should be clear, it hasn't lost all of these decisions. When, when Mount Valley Pipeline is making this claim, it excludes from the baseline of, of the number of decisions that it's talking about, a bunch of decisions related to condemnation, which is its authority to take land for the pipeline, um, almost all of which the same group of judges has upheld. So like allowing them to take private property under federal statutes to build their pipeline. So it kicks those out of the denominator to make the numbers look less favorable to it. And then it says, you know, we're losing more of these cases than we think we should under like the law of averages, I guess. <laughs> and and it's already complained to the Fourth Circuit uh, in its petitions. You know, when it loses a case, it's it's petition for rehearing on bog, which just means it's asked the full Fourth Circuit to consider these decisions. And it's kind of jabbed at the panel in those filings. And the Fourth Circuit hasn't full Fourth Circuit. So including other judges, right, hasn't taken taken the bait, hasn't thought that there was, you know, worthwhile merit to those claims. And it, it actually moved to basically disqualify the panel recently and asked the Fourth Circuit to assign these cases to a different panel. And the Fourth Circuit said no. And, you know, just to be clear, it's not like losing all these cases at all. If you read these decisions, you know, the panel will accept some of the claims, it will reject some of the claims, they're like thoroughly reasoned decisions, it's not like they're like knee-jerk anti-pipeline decisions, they're just holding the federal agencies which, you know, have obligations under federal statutes to their burdens. And so I guess having, you know, failed to make an argument that would win in court, um, now Valley Pipeline has now gotten uh, its backers to to take these cases away from the Fourth Circuit and put them in the D.C. Circuit. And I have to say, you know, reading these decisions, I didn't work on these cases. So I, all I've done is read some of the opinions, but they don't strike me as the kind of opinions that would come out differently if you put them in front of a different set of judges and not to like psychoanalyze judges. But I can't imagine the D.C. Circuit is going to be, you know, that pleased that, you know, this pipeline company thinks that, like, you know, they, they looked around the country and wanted to pick their judges and, and decided on the D.C. Circuit. You know, I don't think federal judges in general like the idea of, of judge shopping in that way or implying that, you know, the Fourth Circuit is biased. Those are their colleagues, too. Um, so I'm not really sure it's going to work out any better for them at the end. But, you know, just, Amy, your question kind of hinted at it, that it just is a bottom line matter. It's sort of distressing that's that a really powerful industry group can pick its judges in its cases um, yeah. in order to kind of gerrymander the outcomes that it wants. Um, that, that just on its face looks really bad. Seems like a bad precedent to set. <laughs> you know? but at the same time, it's ironic that, that the, they want to be in the DC circuit because hey. uh, you know, the DC circuit is is not the fifth circuit in fact as as environmental lawyers i you know that's not a bad place for us it tends to be a highly technocratic and very um you know it's 
I back when I was an active litigator, that was my favorite court to litigate in because they dug in and they would really get to know the the, the details of the arguments. And uh, if I'm not at all sure that if if I were an industry that that's where I'd go. Now, certainly, if they had said we want to go to the Fifth Circuit, I I would have number one said, well, I I can understand why, <laughs> uh, and number two, I would have been all the more distressed that that they really were just. Um, you know, forum shopping in the most naked way. Um, but you know, so anyway, that I, I share Kirti's concern that, that we're moving specific cases around. I do think it's sort of funny that they may be out of the frying pan and into the fire. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It'll, it'll depend on the panel draw they get in the DC circuit. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I thought that was weird too. It was like, I don't, it's not like that's a slam dunk for them. Okay. So, uh, looking ahead at the next session, of the Supreme Court. Um, obviously, West Virginia versus EPA is not the only, you know, environment or climate related case that they have taken up. What should we be looking out for? What's coming up next? I know, Sam, you kind of wrote about this recently. Yeah, well, the, the blockbuster case uh, of next term, or at least so far, the the likely blockbuster is, um, is, is the Sackett case, which involves the Clean Water Act. And uh, you know, the Sacketts have been serial litigators on this issue and have been to the Supreme Court before where they won nine to zero on a fairly straightforward question about whether or not they had a right to be <laughs> in court at all on this. Uh, they're um, a, uh, a couple whose uh, claim is based on their desire to get a permit to do some development and their their belief that they shouldn't even have to get a permit. To be clear, they they if they had applied, they almost certainly would have gotten a permit, but they don't even feel like they should have to get one. Um, and the permit is to is to fill in some wetlands on their property. Um, and the real underlying question is, what does the Clean Water Act protect? And everybody understands that the Clean Water Act protects lakes and rivers and um, and the ocean, um, you know, big rivers in the ocean. Um, but the fight for some time. Um, from the right has been to constrict the applicability of the Clean Water Act to smaller streams and to wetlands. And of course, any scientist would tell you that there's no way to protect the water quality in downstream rivers and lakes uh, in those bodies that nobody nobody, uh, nobody contends aren't protected by the Clean Water Act. But if you want to protect those water bodies, you need to protect the upper parts of the watershed, which often involves smaller rivers uh, and streams, and then the wetlands that that feed them. So um, the there's a lot of industries that would like to be able to fill in wetlands and uh, and and frankly pollute areas that that currently the Clean Water Act protects. And um, by arguing that the Clean Water Act doesn't protect those things, they're essentially going to accomplish deregulation. So they're not changing the protections of the Clean Water Act; they're changing where they apply. Now, the court has been very interested in this issue for a while. And um, back when Justice Scalia was around, he wrote a, an important opinion that, on, that only attracted three other votes. So it was, a, it was only an opinion of four justices and therefore wasn't controlling. But it suggested a much more constricted understanding of what the Clean Water Act protects and we know that that um, I, I you know I think everybody is predicting that this court will um, will try to put Justice Scalia's test in in charge, which would again be a, a much more restricted understanding of what the Clean Water Act protects. That's that's the blockbuster. But there are, there are some other maybe less um, 
less appreciated cases that will have a lot to do with environmental law. I mean, it's not always environmental law cases that in fact, that, that affect what environmental law does because right. administrative law, the law of regulations is, uh, props up in lots of, lots of contexts, not just the environment. Right. Right. Well, I, well, I have one follow-up on the second case. Do, do you have any sense of kind of where that case came from in terms of, you know, our, oh. <laughs> Like, oh, who, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm very I'm curious if it's like, is it a Raga case? Is it like how coordinated is? The, well, that? I mean, you know, it's you know, let's put it this way. Uh, if it, it is it is awfully convenient for the many uh, organizations that are supporting the Sackets, that the Sackets themselves are are a sort of, um, you know, libertarian face of this, uh, this with just, you know, this this you know this couple that you know seems like just a mom and pop uh, trying to get something done but it's it, it should come as no surprise that organizations like the American Petroleum Institute are happy to file major uh, amicus briefs and the, the sackets are being uh, represented by by folks who are movement and agenda lawyers so this mm. is this may not have been you know I'm not sure anybody called them up and said hey you should try to build something and then we'll make a case out of it but certainly when their case right. popped up, it attracted a lot of attention and a lot of support because it was a it was a vehicle that a lot of uh, not mom and pop operations were interested right. in in seeing succeed. Right, right. Who's who's representing them? It's the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean they're not. This is not a. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, we're we're uh, an organization with a point of view, and I'm sure that right. there are people at the Pacific Legal Foundation who would say, "Oh, well, Earth Justice is representing them." The difference is we don't have a whole lot of industries <laughs> who are also feeding us money in order to to do that. Um, you right. know, we're a, we're we are not on the side of industry, and we don't, uh, you know, we don't have the American Petroleum Institute filing next to us. Right. Right. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just you know. Just to inject a bit of, you know, I, I think yeah. Sam's laid out just how important the Clean Water Act is and how important a decision that restricts its scope and what it is capable of protecting is to, you know, like real people on the ground, um, many of whom are our clients. Um, but it's probably also worth like just noting that these briefs that Sam mentioned, you know, from people like the uh, API, the Chamber of Commerce, Americans for Prosperity, you know, a group of red states, again, led by West Virginia. You know, these briefs aren't, um, you know, there's something similar to what was happening in West Virginia versus EPA going on in these cases. They're not just about the Clean Water Act. They're also kind of trying to seed these anti-regulatory principles in the same way as they succeeded in West Virginia. They're asking, you know, they're telling the court, like, um, things like, you know, well, the Clean Water Act is, you know, addresses like uh, public health and safety, and that's traditionally an area of the state's control, not the federal government's control. So there's got it's got to be really clear when there's a federal statute that invades that traditional state authority. You know, all these kind of clear statement rules is what they're called in the law that uh, basically act as like thumbs on the scale against federal power or agency power. This is like round two of trying to develop additional tools that can be used um, in later cases and later challenges. So it's not just, it's it's about the Clean Water Act. All these groups have a very obvious interest in avoiding 
um, the application of the Clean Water Act, right? Um, but it's also that they see this as another opportunity before this court to kind of establish broader legal principles that they could then use going forward. You know, one thing you notice is um, Kirti and I both uh, both worked at the Supreme Court at very different times. Um, and when I was there, the the swing vote was Justice O'Connor, who I worked for, or in some cases, Justice Kennedy. And each back then, people didn't push these big legal principles. They didn't really, you know, in some cases, they would talk about deregulatory ideas or returning power to the states to appeal to Justice Kennedy. But in general, people were kind of swinging for singles. They were trying to win um, small and individual cases and build big. And what you're seeing in cases like Sackett is, I think the 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 other side on these things is assuming that they're going to win the narrow case. They, they're pretty sure they're going to win the Sackett's case. And they're swinging for the fences to get broader principles. So in the West Virginia versus EPA case, you know, all of us on the outside were saying, why would they have taken this case about a regulation that doesn't even exist if they were going to say that the regulation was fine? So so we strongly suspect that they're going to try to strike this regulation down. So the fight is really about how far do they hit that ball into the outfield and do they get a home run? So what you see in the briefs on the right is just egging the court's conservatives on to say as much as possible through the vehicle of the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned some other cases that um, could have a big impact on environmental issues um, in general, but are not necessarily explicitly environmental cases. Could you um, expand on that? Which which cases um, are you kind of keeping an eye on in that regard? Yeah. There's um there's one case called Ross and it's a it's actually a constitutional case. It's not an administrative law case, and it's about the um, what's called the dormant commerce clause, which is like um, law speak for like an unwritten principle that is derived from the commerce clause of the federal constitution. Um, but basically, this is a case about um, a ballot initiative that was passed in California. It's called Proposition 12. And it's a law that prohibits um, people from selling pork in California that is um, derived from uh, an animal that was confined in a cruel manner, mm. which is, you know, defined as things like, you know, preventing the animal from being able to lie down or turn around or being in a space that's too small. And pork producers have challenged this uh, law as violating what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause. And, um, you know, the basic idea is that the federal constitution gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce, so commerce between states. And so the kind of back, like principle that the dormant commerce clause enforces is the idea that like if that's Congress's power, then states can't do that. And so when states try and do that, that violates the so-called dormant commerce clause. And there's like different ways that the Supreme Court's cases describe how this principle could be violated. One is like when a state sort of literally writes a law that says like, you know, if it's if it's Texas and they write a law that says like Louisiana products can't be sold here or something like that. Right. So one is where it's like obviously discriminating against um against interstate commerce. Another one is this kind of mushier balancing test where if a state passes a law that burdens interstate commerce, that the court's going to kind of balance whether or not that like benefits 
that the state is offering in support of that law outweigh the burdens on interstate commerce. And the last one, which is kind of the most important for the discussion we're having, is this principle called the extraterritoriality principle, which is the idea that if there are, even if a law is like written to address in-state activity, if it has effects outside of the state, that can raise concerns that would require the application of a constitutional test. And, you know, obviously this case is important on its own facts, but the reason it's important in a broader sense is that uh, folks have challenged laws like renewable portfolio standards under this extraterritoriality principle. You know, the idea being if a state says, you know, X percentage of our energy has to come from renewable sources, we live on an interconnected grid. And so that has some effect on um, the production of energy outside of the state. And in a sort of like weird moment of potential hope, conservative judges, a lot of conservative judges, I should say, not all of them, but are kind of uh, unhappy with this extraterritoriality idea because, you know, the whole dormant commerce clause enterprise is, is not really based in, in the text of the constitution and this extraterritoriality principle is like kind of the most formless of all of them, right? It's like, if there are some effects that you, you question its constitutionality and like almost everything has effects, almost everything in our modern world has effects outside of the state. And so um, Justice Gorsuch actually wrote an opinion when he was on the 10th circuit upholding Colorado's renewable portfolio standards under this, uh, under a challenge based on this extraterritoriality principle. And so, you know, I think there's a chance that in this in this case, the court maybe goes towards limiting that and then like keeping those kinds of um, RPS laws on, on safer grounds, uh, not, you know, in the text of the opinion, but sort of as a consequence of the opinion. So that's one to watch, um, watch as well. And then there are just kind of like other cases that, you know, you might not think of as environmental cases, but, you know, the court's hearing a big affirmative action case next term. And, you know, it'll be important to see what the court says about that for things like, you know, environmental justice laws or projects or programs and, and, you know, which um, like try to protect overburdened communities. And often there is, um, right, a corollary with race. And so understanding what the court thinks about when you can address those situations is going to be really important. There's uh, an administrative law case the court just took um, where it seems like the court's going to address uh, a pretty important issue about when states have standing to sue mm. and potentially make it harder for states to have standing. And so in a world where the court's you know, making it harder for individual plaintiffs to sue one sort of bright spot has been that, at least for the environmental community, is that, you know, blue state coalitions can still bring suits. Obviously, there's a trade-off with the other uh, group of states being able to bring suits as well, right? But, like, right, that's, right. that's been one way to get to court. And so that's another decision we'll be watching to see um, what the court says about state standing. And that's only, you know, it's the court's only taken... <laughs> like maybe two sittings worth of cases. So there'll be more, more to come. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any sense? I mean, like I, I've, especially with oil companies, um, I don't know. Like I, I, I wonder if we'll see U S oil companies being sued in other countries more, even if they start to get away with things here. 
Well, it's certainly the case that we, you know, Earth Justice does have an international program, and mm-hmm. our international program primarily supports uh, public interest law organizations in other countries. The U.S. has a, a very developed public interest environmental law program, and that's not to say it's very, very, you know, it, like it's enormous. We have about 180 lawyers, and that makes us huge uh, and, you know, a a giant law firm (laughs) in the public interest world, but that's still pretty small in the grand scheme of things. In other countries, it's an order of magnitude, if not uh, less than that in terms of what the resources are there. Having said that, those those organizations um, and regular old people in other other countries have been very successful in pushing back on uh, international and U.S. oil companies for the local harms that have been happening, where they have the resources to bring those cases. Again, the public interest legal community in those in countries like you know um, uh, South Africa or Australia or uh, or Latin America, you know, in general, they're just much less well resourced than we are in the U.S. And the the structures for public interest law are much less developed. But the flip side is, some of those countries have provisions in their constitution that are more directly relevant to those claims. And so we're seeing, for example, in places like uh, like South Africa, where, where plaintiffs have been able to say, hey, look, you know, we have legal protections on these things, and you, the courts, need to figure out ways to make bring those protections to life. I mean, we, the federal constitution, our federal constitution doesn't have, um, you know, those kinds of express um, provisions, but some of the state constitutions do. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, there are direct state, uh, constitutional protections. I, I like Montana. Um, I, I, I don't know the, the precise language off the top of my head, but, but Montana's constitution does have protections, uh, for, for people, um, to make sure that they have a clean, healthy environment. I forget what the exact language is, but what that means is that there's an ability for people to go for people in Montana to go to court to say, Hey, this thing that's happening, uh, violates the state constitution. And then, um, there are also states like Louisiana and Hawaii that have public trust doctrines. And those are doctrines that say that the state government, that state land is, is, um, it, that there's, a, that there's, a, uh, an obligation of the government to, to be protecting that uh, in the public interest. And in some of those states, we've been able to make some headway and other public interest litigants have been able to make some headway and saying, hey, your state courts need to do something with these things. These can't just be written on paper. Um, and then finally, there are states like New York that are enacting transformative legislation like the um, the CLCPA, uh, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act in New York. And those are super important tools. And uh, I think those are increasingly going to be the focus of um, political climate and uh, uh, state-level climate action, because those laws are going to be really important. And we're going to see those being done both statutorily uh, by legislators and I think also through ballot initiatives um, that we've seen um in places like Washington State and all, elsewhere, to 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 bring um, real legal protections at the state level into play. That actually totally dovetails with my last question, which is we kind of touched on this earlier too. Um, I think that there's a certain amount of uh, understandable um, pessimism about you know litigation 
because ultimately it will end up in the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court will rule against anything that's good for climate. That's that's like the, you know, in very broad strokes, the sentiment that I hear a lot. So I'm curious what your response is to that. Oh, I think the courts are going to remain super relevant and if anything, more relevant. The old model of environmental law was to fight at a purely regulatory level, you know, just to sort of go to court and say, here's the Clean Air Act. We're going to sue EPA for not issuing stricter regulations on this. Or if the regulations come out and the industry challenges them to be in there to say, hey, wait, these regulations are fine. Um, and and I, I do agree that with a, a highly deregulatory and skeptical of agencies, Supreme Court, that kind of litigation is is going to be harder and uh, that we're going to have to be more thoughtful and cautious in the cases that we bring uh, and more aggressive in our defense of um, regulations that are on the books and statutes that are on the books. On the other hand, um, you know, the climate justice and environmental justice movements are deeply dovetailed with, uh, with the need for getting systematic change in the way we regulate pollution and climate. And a lot of those cases are very much um, local, fact-intensive, and specific cases about specific harms and specific violations of law that are part and parcel of a movement for broader change. And those kinds of cases brought on behalf of communities where you're going into court saying, this isn't about some abstract principle that's way over there in Washington, D.C. This is about real people and a pipeline or a mine um, or, or pollution that's affecting real lives, whether it's you know lead in the water or, or smog in the air. Those cases are going to be really important in the years to come. And those are cases where what matters is the facts you bring, the partners you bring, the 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 industries that you're you're dealing with those I think those cases are very live and I don't see any way in which those cases are going to be um, you know like fundamentally harder harder to bring you know there's there's things like standing and others that, that the that the that the right wing courts are trying to these little doctrines that the the court is trying to chip away on the side but I fundamentally believe that those cases are going to be both increasingly important and that they're going to be continue to be very viable and very uh, very powerful Thrilled and Damages are original Critical Frequency Productions. This episode was reported by me, Amy Westervelt, and mixed and mastered by Bennett Smith. Original music is by Peter Duff. Her artwork is done by Matthew Fleming. For ongoing information about climate litigation and all sorts of other things, check out our website at drilledpodcast.com. You can also follow us at We Are Drilled. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.